From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at teacher pay in Wisconsin and what might need to happen to increase wages. I would expect if Act 10 were to be overturned, um, we'd still have quite a few constraints on districts' ability to be able to pay teachers. Then we'll learn about the history of Milwaukee's Enderis Park neighborhood and how it grew around the play field at its center. They referred to it as the park at 72nd and Chambers more often than anything else. Um, so it didn't really seem to have an identity in terms of a name until it's renamed for Dorothy Endress. Plus, we'll tell you about some things happening in Milwaukee this holiday season. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Wisconsin teachers have been losing buying power for more than a decade. On average, teachers are making $8,000 less than they would be if salaries had kept up with inflation. That's the conclusion of a new report on teacher pay from the Wisconsin Policy Forum. WUWM's Emily Files speaks with Policy Forum senior researcher Sarah Shaw about lagging teacher pay and what it says about school funding overall. How much do Wisconsin teachers get paid and how does that compare to what teachers made 10 or 15 years ago? So we were looking at data that ranged from 2009 until last year, the 22-23 school year. And last year, um, the median gross teacher pay, so not what teachers were taking home, but kind of their gross pay um, was $59,000 approximately. And when we compare that to 2009, it's an increase of a little over $8,000. In 2009, they were making just over $51,000. But that's before we adjust for inflation. And when we adjust for inflation and put that 2009 figure into 2023 terms, now it's actually a decrease of over $8,000. It would have been $67,500 in 2000. Uh, nine and now down to the 59,000 in 2023. So if teacher pay had kept up with inflation, teachers would be making a median of about 67,500? That's right, between 67 and 68,000. So we can't talk about teacher pay in Wisconsin without talking about Act 10, which weakened teachers' unions' powers and collective bargaining rights. Um, A lawsuit was filed last week seeking to overturn Act 10. What effect did that law have on teacher salaries? It's interesting because I might have expected to see a decrease directly due to Act 10. And in fact, what we see is that districts were able, they were allowed under Act 10 to raise wages up to the rate of inflation. And we actually see districts not even doing that. So something is going on besides Act 10. Um, One factor in there is that Act 10 did cause a wave of teacher retirements. And when we're talking about median teacher pay, the loss of older, higher paid teachers is going to bring that median figure down, even if all other teachers kept the same salaries or even increased. Um, So some of this is is a statistical piece, but the other factor here is revenue limits, which are separate from Act 10 and are set by the state legislature. And those were not keeping pace with inflation, uh, which really seems to have constrained districts ability to increase teacher pay. 
So under Act 10, you mentioned um, teachers unions are able to negotiate for raises um, up to the rate of inflation, but teacher salaries haven't even kept pace with inflation. And that comes down to most likely the revenue limits, which keep a cap on how much districts can spend per student. How have those revenue limits impacted teacher pay? There seems to be a pretty tight correlation between the revenue limits and the limits on how much teacher pay could increase by. So up until 2009, those revenue limits, which cap the largest amount of revenue that districts get through the combination of state general school aid and local property taxes, those revenue limits kept pace with inflation. And then as of 2009, that tie between the revenue limits and inflation disappears. And we see instead a lot of variation in the revenue limits and generally not keeping pace with inflation. And that's what we see on the teacher salary side as well. That median teacher pay just continues falling further and further behind inflation, likely because districts aren't receiving the revenue to be able to keep up with those ongoing costs. So if Act 10 were overturned under this lawsuit, would that affect teacher compensation uh, potentially, or would there also need to be a change in the revenue limits? You know, I would have to learn more about the specific lawsuit and any remedies that could be put in place to understand what the effect on direct compensation would be. Um, However, without a change in revenue limits, we know that there will still be constraints on district spending. And teacher compensation makes up such a majority of a district's expenditures that without that increase in revenue, any increase in expenditures won't allow a district to have a balanced budget. Now, there are some other things in play here besides the revenue limits. For example, declining enrollment um, is a big factor of districts being able to receive the same amount of money if the number of students that they have is declining, and also the number of staff. So declining enrollment on the student side hasn't necessarily been happening alongside declining staffing levels. Um, So fewer students with the same number of teachers means that you might have that those costs getting spread um, even as the revenue is declining. So I would expect if Act 10 were to be overturned, um, we'd still have quite quite a few constraints on districts' ability to be able to pay teachers. Uh, You were talking about how student enrollment has decreased, but the number of teachers working in Wisconsin schools has not decreased. What does that say about school staffing and how, you know, the challenges that that schools are going to face to pay their staff? I think my first thought is that it says a lot about what we know about teaching and education as a people-powered enterprise, that many leaders think of education as something that really comes in the relationships between people. And that over time has led schools and districts to really invest in their people and invest in staff. Um, And the tricky part has been that those staff add a lot of ongoing cost to a district's budget and to their expenditures. So it is going to be interesting to me to see whether as enrollment continues to decline, do we see districts grappling with the need to not fill vacancies and rearrange staff or staffing assignments to better match the reality of their 
of their student population. But those are very difficult conversations to have in communities. And even some of the districts we see facing budgetary shortfalls um, going into 2025 and beyond have started talking about the, the almost third rail conversation of school closures um, as part of this kind of need to think about right sizing. So some districts increased teacher pay significantly this year. Milwaukee Public Schools was one of the districts that that increased teacher pay by 8%, which was um, uh, matching the rate of inflation. Uh, so you point out that while that might be warranted, it puts districts in a difficult financial position uh, to try to sustain those pay increases. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's a little bit of a catch-22 for districts that really want to retain their existing staff and compensate them at the level of inflation to allow teachers to keep up with their cost of living increases. Um, Because a district might reasonably want to be able to then raise teacher pay to to match that cost of living increase. Uh, But if they're not receiving an increase in their revenue in the same amount, that immediately creates a shortfall and a mismatch. And so some of our districts that went with this full 8% are now grappling with how they're going to afford it in the out years. Um, I should say, I think some of our districts that didn't do the full 8% are also going to feel some of that pressure because of the the accumulated strain of trying to maintain budgets um, with uncertain revenue limits and, and variable revenue limits. But for our districts that went with the full 8%, they're probably going to feel it most keenly. Do we know how much teacher pay has contributed to the high teacher turnover and high number of teacher vacancies we've seen in recent years? It's a tricky correlation to make. Teacher pay does seem to make a difference, particularly in our smallest and rural school districts. Um, Those districts have lower than average teacher pay and also see higher than average turnover. So there seems to be a correlation there. It's a little harder to talk about it in relation to other industries. Teachers um, generally are getting paid less than their counterparts who have equivalent education. And so there could easily be something in there about teachers, uh, prospective teachers choosing not to go into the profession or leaving for other professions if there's higher pay elsewhere. Um, We also have survey data generally nationally that speaks to the importance of working conditions for teachers as being something that really determines how long they stay in the field, potentially even more so than pay. So salary is a factor here, um, but it can be very dependent how much of a factor it is. Is there anything else that you want to add? Uh, Maybe one other piece to add is that When we released this piece, we heard feedback from folks in lots of industries saying, hey, my pay hasn't kept up with inflation either. I mean, we've had such high rates the last couple of years. And that's, I think, a valid point to make. We did see that teacher pay was not keeping pace with inflation even through 2019 before we started seeing this soaring rise. Um, So certainly this is something affecting a lot of professions, but does seem to have been an issue in education even prior to the recent occurrences. Sarah Shaw is a senior researcher with Wisconsin Policy Forum. She spoke with WUWM education reporter Emily Files. Shows like Law & Order paint a very specific picture of our criminal justice system. A crime is committed, there's an investigation, there's a trial, and then a sentence. But the reality for most people facing a criminal charge in the U.S. is very different. In Milwaukee County, more than half of all cases never make it to trial. Instead, they end in what's known as a plea deal. 
A report comparing Milwaukee and St. Louis looks at how these plea deals are used and how defendants are affected by them. John Steeman is one of the authors on the report, and he joins me to explore what they found. What is a plea deal? So a a plea deal is a negotiation and an agreement between the prosecutor's office and a defendant. The plea agreement, which is the result of the negotiation, is in which a defendant agrees to plead guilty to a crime, generally in exchange for something, whether a reduction in charge or a sentence recommendation by the prosecutor's office. The negotiation part that we studied was the negotiation that takes place between the prosecutor and generally the defense attorney in which they agree, come to an agreement about what the defendant will plead guilty to. So when we think about a plea deal, what tends to be included in that? What 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 makes up the deal, I guess? Well, generally, the deal is some reduction either in the severity or the number of charges that a defendant faces or an agreement to a specific sentence that the defendant will receive following the guilty plea. Now, as we think about the situations in which plea deals are used, it's probably prudent to mention uh, they're used about 60% of the time here in Milwaukee County. It seems like Milwaukee, for the most part, does sit at least near the trend. Now, this report specifically is looking at Milwaukee and comparing it to St. Louis. When we compare these two cities, which do deal with kinds of um, similar issues overall. How do they compare? How does Milwaukee compare to St. Louis? It's pretty close. More, a larger majority of cases in St. Louis end in a, in a guilty plea. Uh, about 85% of cases in, in St. Louis ended in a guilty plea during our study period, and about 65% of those in Milwaukee ended in a, in a guilty plea. Uh, there are a couple differences between the two jurisdictions, though. A larger share of guilty pleas in St. Louis County are the result of some kind of either reduction in the number of charges, the reduction in the severity of charges. In Milwaukee County, uh, a smaller percentage of cases end in either a, a reduction in the number of charges or severity of charges relative to St. Louis. One of the things that you've said sets Milwaukee apart from St. Louis, and I'm not sure if this is true of other cities as well, is it generally makes just one offer, one deal. Why would that be significant? Well, I, what we hear from the prosecutor's office in Milwaukee is a, a general policy that they set when John Chisholm took over as the district attorney was that the first offer that you make to a defendant should be the best offer you have. It should be the only offer that you make. As we've heard from prosecutors, at least from the elected prosecutor in Milwaukee County, is that there's nothing here to fool a defendant or to try to coerce them into pleading guilty. The object is to offer them what you believe they should be found guilty of. And that's the offer that you make and the offer that you stick to throughout the life of a case. And I think you see that in in the outcomes that we find in Milwaukee County. Very few cases uh, result in a guilty plea that involves some reduction in the severity of charges. That's because in Milwaukee County, prosecutors are told you charge somebody what you want them to be found guilty of. You offer them a guilty plea or a negotiation to that charge. And that's generally how most of the cases end up. I think it's fairer for the defendant. It's fairer for the system. It's more transparent in what the prosecutor's office thinks uh, the outcome of the case should be. Now, when it comes to this idea of being fair, there is this idea of the trial penalty, essentially the idea that if a defendant goes to trial, they could be penalized for not taking a deal. 
in, in which they invariably have to admit guilt. You have to admit guilt for these plea deals. Now, this analysis didn't look at the veracity of the trial penalty concept, but it did look at what people taking these deals thought about the process. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, defendants uh, in both Milwaukee and St. Louis, the process to them was very opaque. They they weren't really clear on the plea negotiation process. They often didn't feel that they were part of it. They also felt that it, it took a really long time for their cases to get to the point where they were asked to plead guilty. And then they were they felt pressured to plead guilty really quickly. They described it to us as that it took a really long time for a really fast process to happen. And this is common. Uh, we see this in other jurisdictions as well. Defense really feel removed from the process that's about them and the, the guilty plea that they're about to engage in. They have very little information about it. If they've never been charged with the crime or pled guilty before, they don't really understand how the process works. And there's little information communicated back to them during that process. One of the recommendations that we have that comes out of this is to find a way to involve defendants more in their cases so that they understand better why they're pleading guilty, what they're pleading guilty to, and what the process is going to entail. I think that gets to some of the concerns that people from the outside looking in at least have when it comes to our criminal justice system in a variety of ways, right? Uh, we know that we have an overburdened public defender system here in the state of Wisconsin. We have a lot of people in need of public defenders. We have not enough people to fill those spots. Hearing that so many of uh, the cases that come to Milwaukee County end in plea deals where someone is, of course, pleading guilty, especially in situations where defendants don't feel like they're part of the process, that that becomes concerning. You have to ask yourself a bit, is this justice? Is this what we believe justice should look like? When it comes to this report and the analysis you've done, both of Milwaukee County and St. Louis, what are some of the other recommendations that you have looking at this information? One of the things we heard from both prosecutors and defense attorneys was an interest in a, a better exchange of information and a more timely exchange of information. And one of the recommendations we have, and we heard this from judges and from prosecutors, defense attorneys of recommendation, that there be more formalized interactions between prosecutors and defense attorneys earlier in the process, a better exchange of information between defense attorneys and prosecutors, particularly around mitigating factors that the defense attorney might know about, but not communicate to the prosecutor early in the process. Everyone believed that that would lead to better outcomes, right? That prosecutors would be more aware of mitigating factors that might affect the ultimate plea offer that they would make. And the defense attorneys would understand why prosecutors were making the offer that they were they were making. We, we also heard from both prosecutors and defense attorneys a real tension that they have between wanting to ensure consistent outcomes across cases, but also wanting to individualize the plea offer and the plea negotiation process, right? It's this balance between equality and outcomes and equity and outcomes that they wanted to achieve. And they felt that this exchange, better exchange of information would, would help ensure that, but also essentially starting from some agreed upon starting point. Like guidelines is what one person recommended, at least guidelines of a starting point for where plea office should be. And then with the exchange of information about the defendant, the ability to individualize that plea offer after that initial guideline. So everyone would start at the same kind of base, right? But then we could adjust the plea offer, the outcome based on the factors, specific factors about the about the defendant. And they felt that that would ensure greater 
equality and equity in, in plea outcomes. Sure. Well, Don, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Thank you so much. John Steeman is a professor at Loyola University in Chicago and one of the co-authors of a report on how plea deals are used in Milwaukee. We spoke last year. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Coming up, we'll look at some of the many holiday events happening this month in Milwaukee, including an annual festival where barbers and police officers face off on the basketball court. But first, we'll learn about the history of Enderis Playfield and how the Enderis Park neighborhood was shaped around it. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. During working hours, we make a living. During leisure hours, we make a life. This is the quote most associated with Dorothy Enderis, the second and arguably most influential leader of the Milwaukee Recreation Department. Under Enderis' guidance, Milwaukee became a model for playground and social center programs in the nation. Enderis Playfield in the Enderis Park neighborhood is named in her honor. Bobby Tanzillo, senior editor and writer for On Milwaukee, did an extensive article on the history of Enderis Playfield. He joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski to share more. Bobby, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. I love to speak to you guys. So we're talking about the Enders Park neighborhood, and the park is a central focal point to this whole community. But let's talk about it before it became this. What was the land before it was the play field that's there today? Um, so this neighborhood was um, farmland. It was the town of Wauwatosa, not to be confused with the city or village of Wauwatosa. There was lots of little Wauwatosas. But this was the town of Wauwatosa, which was basically rural. And the land that the park sits on was a farm that was owned by a guy named Erastus. There's a name you don't hear much anymore, Erastus Smith. And actually, you know, if you go slightly northwest of the park, there's an intersection of Burley and Lisbon. Um, and there's like a tavern there and some gas stations and a few other things. But that was originally called Smithville. So there was actually like a little four corners kind of thing there that was named after him. And um, he owned all of that farmland. Um, and the neighborhood itself was originally sort of three separate farmsteads, but the park was on Erastus Smith's land. Um, and then in the 20s, it started, you know, developers started to kind of move west of the city as demand grew, as population grew. And they platted out a whole neighborhood here, which was called Galecrest Park. Um, and it's basically the street 
layout you see today, although there are some minor changes. But basically, if you look at the rendering of what they wanted it to look like, it's pretty much what it looks like now. And then they divided up into lots and started selling the lots. And by 1927, the city annexed it um, and it became part of the city of Milwaukee. And right around that same time, uh, the city also wanted part of the land to be a park. And um, they apparently bought a little bit of it at the time because they start, you know, early documents show some of that land is already kind of as parkland, but they didn't actually end up buying the whole piece until 1931. And then the park happens sort of slowly, I think, initially as the neighborhood grows. You know, they knew when they sort of set it aside as parkland, there wasn't really a neighborhood yet. It was just the, the plan of a neighborhood. But it was good they had the foresight to do that, you know, rather than just selling off all the lots and then we would have no place for parkland. Exactly. So as the city purchased more land for this park. Can you explain the transition of when it turned into a WPA project? Because that was definitely after the Great Depression. A lot of great programs and buildings, parks we see all around Milwaukee today are from the WPA. Yeah, so the WPA was the Works Progress Administration was set up to help um, employ some of the countless unemployed people during the Depression. Um, So you get lots of 30s work that was done. And in the Milwaukee area, loads of them were parks. So if you go to Grant Park, you see the seven bridges and all that kind of thing. And in Enders Park, that sort of shows itself in a 1938 service building that was built. And it's built of land and stone. And there's walls around part of the park that were built of land and stone that are from that era. There's some posts by the entrances that are from that era. Um, there's a an old horseshoe pit You don't see too many people playing horseshoes anymore, but there's a horseshoe pit. Um, And that has kind of a low wall that's um, also land and stone. And what's interesting is that that stone becomes sort of, you've seen the neighborhood, loads of land and stone houses in this neighborhood. And if you go further west into Cooper Park, into Mount Mary, Mount Mary itself, most of the buildings are built with land and stone, which came from um, Hartung. It's now called Hartung Park, but it was a quarry at the time that's just northwest of us just beyond Copps Park. And actually the part of Endress Park that I live in used to be the Hartung Farm. So the same family that owned that quarry. So there is really this big connection out here of all these sort of local things coming together. And so the WPA, one of the most beautiful things they built was actually, and I'm not sure what it was meant to be. It almost looks like a stage. It's got sort of a little covered walkway. It's got kind of a platform and some low walls. And it, it really just, it looks like it's meant to be a performance space though I'm not entirely sure that's what it is. So when it was a WPA project, was it still called Galecrest Park? Um, I think so. You usually, whenever I found references, I wrote a really long article about the the park once, and whenever I found references to it in the neighborhood, I mean, in the newspapers, I'm sorry, they, um, they referred to it as the park at 72nd and Chambers more often than anything else. Um, so it didn't really seem to have an identity in terms of a name until it's renamed for Dorothy Endress. Yeah, so let's get into Dorothy real quick here. She has a long lasting legacy and it's very fitting that this playfield is named after her. Who was Dorothy Endress? So Dorothy Endress, uh, she was born in Illinois, but as a baby, um, she came with her family to Milwaukee. So she went to the public schools here. She graduated from um, your alma mater, which was then called Westside High School, um, later West Division. Um, and she then studied at the Normal School, which is a school for teachers um, on Well Street. That's now the, the rescue mission. And um, 
she then took a job as a librarian, I think, at that same school. And then she was a school teacher for a little while. I think she taught fourth grade. Um, and she got hired by the recreation division of Milwaukee Public Schools as an assistant to Harold Berg, who was sort of the kind of initially the leading light at the he, he was the director. Uh, but he was really kind of a well-known proponent of this sort of lighted schoolhouse movement, which at the time, you know, in, in this early 20th century, there was this movement to open schools after hours so that the community would have a place to meet and to gather and to take classes. And it was very big for immigrants to take English language classes, for people to take, you know, sewing classes, cooking classes, lots of sports stuff for kids, um, that kind of thing. Really what we think of now as Milwaukee Rec. You know, that's the birth of Milwaukee Rec. And they still do the same sort of thing now. Um, and they still do it in MPS schools. But he was really a big pioneer and proponent of that. Um, and so Dorothy became his assistant. And when he took a job in Cleveland doing the same sort of thing, she had obviously shown her abilities and she was named to replace him, which in 1920 had to have been a pretty big deal. Absolutely. And she continued to grow the outreach, the physical footprint of the programs of places that people could go to. At the time, they were called social centers, but what we now know is Milwaukee Rec. So when was this park dedicated to her and in honor of her career and all that she's done for communities similar to the Endress Park neighborhood? Well, it happened in 1950. She retired in 1948. And in 1950 is when the city officially hands this park over to MPS for Milwaukee Rec to manage. Um, and at that same ceremony is when they named it in her honor. And fortunately, she was alive and could be there for it and enjoy it. It didn't happen after she was gone. And it's now known as a play field. Is that the main difference? A park is by the county and a play field is City of Milwaukee run through the rec division? It's complicated, I think. Um, initially, play fields had a sort of very strict definition. They were a minimum amount, amount of acres. They were aimed at kids who were a little older, 15 and up, and they had a lot of programming in them as well. You know, if you look at old Milwaukee Rec documents and stuff, you'll see that nearly all of the play fields had organized classes, organized sports teams, organized like after school programming, uh, organized summer programming. Um, there's old pictures at Enders Park of like kids track and field events and things like that, you know, and so they were, I think playfields were also just very much more programmed than parks. I think we think of, I mean, what you said is a pretty good sort of basic idea. We think of county parks as parks and city parks as playfields a little more, but that's also because the city playfields did for a long time have this kind of programming and a park was more a place you just kind of went and hung out with your family and spread the blanket, had a picnic, you know, that kind of thing. And a playfield was where kids went and stayed off the streets, hopefully otherwise. So you yourself live in this neighborhood, right? I do. I do. I've lived here for about 20 years and I've raised my kids here and it, it feels like home. You know, I didn't I didn't really know much about it before we uh, found our house. But now we've been here for a couple of decades and I mean, that park feels sort of, that park feels like home to us for sure. I mean, we've been there for Easter egg hunts, concerts on the green, every, you know, in the summer they do four or five concerts. They have a farmer's market on Sundays. There's like an autumn harvest festival. July 4th is always huge. You know, there's like a, a bike parade, a bike decorating contest. My kid won the watermelon eating contest once. The fire trucks will come and open the fire hydrant and spray into the park so that, you know, you can all run through the, I mean, it's it really is just 
the kind of neighborhood park that a lot of people would think doesn't exist anymore, but but absolutely exists here. In your work on reading about the park, about Dorothy, what role do you see the park continuing to play today and the legacy that it's named after? I think it really, I mean, it really is a place that serves what is a much more diverse neighborhood than I think people might expect. If you just sort of drive through it, you might think, oh, it's all single family homes, but actually um, there are single family homes, there are some duplexes, there's a quite a few multifamily rentals. So it's economically diverse, it's racially diverse, and everyone uses the park. I mean, if you walk through the park, there'll be like daycare groups on the weekends. There's like huge family picnics. There's um, all of these events we talked about going on in the park. Plus, if you just walk through in the morning, there's you, you might see me jogging through it or walking my, my dog through it, but there's like tons of other people walking their dogs at the same time. There'll be people playing pickleball. It's amazing to walk past it on a nice summer day, especially on a weekend. And, you know, the, the pickleball courts are being used. There's kids in the wading pool. There'll be a softball game going on. If it's the evening on the softball field, there'll be a, a family having a picnic on one part. You know, it's really just, and oh, and there's a playground, which was recently, you know, in the last maybe eight years or so was completely revamped. Um, so there's always kids playing on the playground. There was a second building that was built in 1949, a field house that is also where Milwaukee Rec has a few classes in there, not a ton, but some, and it's where we all vote. So, you know, we all come together there to exercise that right together as a community. And it just, it feels like a neighborhood park and it's a, it's appropriate that the neighborhood is named after the park because I can't imagine what the neighborhood would be like without it because we wouldn't have that same kind of, it's almost like a, you know, a European main square in a way. Well, Bobby, thanks so much for joining me and sharing more about Enders Park. Thanks, Audrey. Always happy to be on here. Bobby Tanzillo is a senior editor and writer for On Milwaukee. He spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. At wuwm.com, you can find the full article about Dorothy Enderis that closed out this season's Bubbler Talk. You'll also find a link to Tanzillo's article on Enderis Playfield. The holiday season is a great time to get together with family and friends and to celebrate the season with people in our community. Every month, I'm joined by Chesney Wardell from the Milwaukee Neighborhood News Service to talk about some of the many events happening in the city. This month is no different. Chesney, thank you so much for joining us again here on Lake Effect. Thanks for having me. So we have a lot of great, uh, largely Christmas holiday-themed events this month. Uh, The first one that we're going to look at, it's a donation drive. It's uh, Winter Wonderland. Yes, it is. So the first event begins with a Winter Wonderland uh, community Christmas as uh, community members across Milwaukee have the opportunity to lend a helping hand by donating any new toys, coats, and winter gear uh, that they may have for either men, women, boys, or girls. Um, So if you have any, um, you have from now until Wednesday, December 13th to donate. Um, The drop-off location for these items is at Gentle Hands, 6815 West Capitol Drive, Suite 311. Um, You can do this from Monday through Thursday, from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. or Friday from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. This is sponsored by Dream Team United. 
um, which is a 501c3 organization um, that does a lot of giving back to their community throughout the year. And what are the kinds of things that they are looking for? So you can bring in any new toys um, or if you have any clothing such as coats, gloves, hats, feel free to bring them in. We all need them (laughs) during this cold weather. For sure. Uh, Now the next event, also uh, geared toward kids, this is going to be a movie night. Yes, it is a movie night because what's Christmas without a movie night? Um, So families are invited to join Evolve Kids for their Christmas pajama movie night from 6 to 7.30 p.m. on Friday, December 15th at Evolve Church, 6550 North 76th Street. Come in your pajamas and bring whatever else will make you feel at home, such as a blanket. Feel free to um, come with your holiday spirit as well. Um, Be sure to click the link to the website to purchase $5 tickets so you can come and enjoy the Christmas nostalgia. Now, uh, have they announced what movie it's going to be? Nope, not yet. (laughs) I was looking for the movie too. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure it'll be something good though. Something good, yeah. Uh, so the next event that we're going to be looking at, uh, this is a an annual event, the seventh annual event of its kind uh, with Barber Zoe. Yes. So Barber Zoe's seventh annual holiday hoop fest is from 3 to 6 p.m. on Saturday, December 16th at the Mary Ryan Boys and Girls Club of Greater Milwaukee, which is 3000 North Sherman Boulevard. This is an event where a series of basketball games will be played as Milwaukee Barbers will take on the heat against the Milwaukee Police Department, District 7. Um, there will be music by DJ Shorty and a host by the name of Unpredictable Drew. So with that being said, feel free to come out and root 14. With the holiday seasonal giving in mind, this next event is going to be uh, a giveaway of sorts, a coat giveaway. Yes, so as we swing into the new month of December, it's only going to get colder, which means the more bundling up individuals have to do. So thankfully, the Holy Temple Firstborn Missionary Baptist Church uh, will be hosting a coat giveaway from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturday, December 16th at 4960 North 18th Street. Um, There will be a variety of coats for men, women, and children. So if you need or know of anyone in need, please pass the event along. Um, If you've been a resident of Wisconsin for some years, then you know the winters here can get crucial. So don't hesitate to come grab what you need for the upcoming weather. The final event that we're going to look at, it's another annual event, Tis the Season Family Dinner and Toys. Yes. So lastly, we have an event um, held by Northcott Neighborhood House. Uh, which is hosting its third annual Tis the Season Family Dinners and Toys, where individuals can come eat a hot Christmas meal from 8 a.m. to noon on Monday, December 25th at 2460 North 6th Street. Um, Parents and guardians can also bring their children, too, um, so they can receive toys and presents. And overall, this is just a time to make um, the holidays special and memorable for everyone. All right. Well, Chesney, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing these events. Thank you for having me. Chesney Wardell is a staff reporter for the Milwaukee Neighborhood News Service. 
Coming up, we'll learn about a Barbie doll in the Wisconsin Historical Society collection. Turns out she's a Midwest gal. We'll explain that next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. The Barbie movie, directed by Greta Gerwig, was the highest-grossing domestic film of 2023. Pretty much since its opening, it has been breaking records, and now stands as Warner Brothers' best domestic release in history. With renewed attention on Barbie, we thought we'd learn more about her and the doll's Wisconsin roots. So if you haven't seen the Barbie movie yet, there's some very mild spoilers I'm about to share with you. But don't worry, it's just for the opening scene. Since the beginning of time, since the first little girl ever existed, there have been dolls. But the dolls were always and forever baby dolls. Until... Enter Barbie. Towering over a group of little girls playing with baby dolls, introducing them to the possibilities of play. Dressed in an iconic black and white striped bathing suit, her blonde hair pulled back in a ponytail, with gold hoop earrings and a pair of white sunglasses. This was the first Barbie doll that was introduced at the International Toy Fair in 1959. If you want to see a similar Barbie doll model, you don't have to go far. The Wisconsin Historical Society has one in their collection. To share more about the doll and where it came from, I'm joined by Abby Norderhow, Director of Acquisitions and State Archivist for the Wisconsin Historical Society. Abby, welcome to Lake Effect. Thanks for speaking with me. Yeah, thank you so much. So you actually have one of these original models in your collection. Where did this Barbie come from? So the Barbie doll that the Wisconsin Historical Society has in their collection is from 1961. So it's a little bit different than that original. Um, the primary difference being that our Barbie has pearl earrings and the original has the hoop earrings. Um, so the Barbie that we have was purchased by Orville and Francine Fox, who lived in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And they actually purchased that Barbie specifically for their granddaughter, Beth Fox, so that when she came to visit them from Madison, she would have something to play with. And Barbie apparently has some Wisconsin roots. She's supposedly from the fictional town of Willows, Wisconsin. Do we know any more about this and her Midwest origin story? Barbie is from Willows, Wisconsin, and that was confirmed in a series of books published by Random House starting in 1960, where it was confirmed that Barbie graduated from high school in Willows, Wisconsin. However, the story has changed a little bit over the years in Barbie Dreamhouse Adventures, which was a television program. Um, the story was changed so that Barbie moved from Willows, Wisconsin when she was eight years old to settle in Malibu. We don't know where Willows is in Wisconsin, um, but it's sort of the idea that 
Ruth Handler had when she created the Barbie doll was that every girl should be able to see herself in Barbie. So centering Barbie in the Midwest and in a small town makes her very accessible. And when Barbie debuted, it was two mixed reviews, honestly. So what were some sort of the concerns that, you know, everyone from doll buyers to even the heads of Mattel had? Barbie was a really unique product when she was introduced. At that time, most dolls aimed at little girls were baby dolls, sort of with the idea that it would let them envision themselves as mothers and let them play in kind of a caretaking role. And the idea of Barbie that Ruth had was that Barbie should be what any little girl could envision her future to be. So having Barbie as an adult rather than a child made little girls think about their future and think about what they could be when they grew up. I think it's notable because Ruth herself was a female executive at a time when female executives were fairly uncommon. And so she was giving girls an avenue to see themselves maybe in a business role or in in one of the many other careers that Barbie has had over the years. One of the main hurdles of the design of Barbie was the fact that she was mature, that she had breasts, that she had long legs and, you know, was something that made obviously all the male executives uncomfortable. And Ruth was trying to explain the concept and she came across uh, something called the Lily doll in, on a trip to Switzerland in the summer of 1956 that kind of modeled what she was trying to conceptualize. Can you explain a bit more about the Lily doll and why it's significant in Barbie's origin? Sure. So, um, Ruth Handler had noticed that her daughter preferred to play with adult women paper dolls rather than baby dolls. And then she was on a trip in Switzerland and came across this Lily doll, which was um, an adult an adult female doll. And she had her daughter with her at the time and both she and her daughter were sort of captivated by this doll and the possibilities that there were there. Um, so she bought one of those dolls and brought it back with her and used it as a model to make to make the modern Barbie doll. And that that idea of an adult female doll with an adult female body was was new at the time, and I think was probably hard for people to accept and to um, envision such a change in what kids were playing with. And while Barbie has had several different careers in her lifetime as a toy, this first Barbie doll was primarily for the fashion accessories, right? Absolutely. So the Barbie's first career was as a teenage fashion model, and one of the things that's really interesting about Barbie and that Lily doll that it was based on is that Barbie, you could purchase individual outfits for her um, and really expand your collection that way. Whereas the Lily doll, you had to purchase a new doll to get different outfits for that doll. Um, Ruth talked about seeing a Lily doll in a beautiful ski sweater and realizing that in order to get that ski sweater, you had to have a whole other doll. So her idea was that making the clothing interchangeable and selling it separately would really allow for more avenues of play. And talking about those other clothing accessories, what other clothing items are with this Barbie in your collection here that you have? This Barbie has a couple other outfits, mainly party dress style outfits. Um, So a couple different pink longer dresses, a skirt. Um, One thing that's really interesting about the Barbie we have in our collection and Barbies in general is the homemade clothing. Um, It used to be so much more common for people to sew their own clothing rather than get it off the rack at a store. And we see that in our collection as well. So we have some commercially made Barbie clothes as well as Barbie clothes that people sewed for their, their dolls to kind of customize their looks. So along with Barbie's popularity as this doll made its footing in the toy world and in popular culture, there was and still is some criticisms of this iconic doll. So what are some of the main negative perceptions that Barbie has? 
obviously one of the main criticisms of Barbie is her body shape. It's not a realistic woman's body shape. And there's been thoughts over the years that that might contribute to, um, to girls and women feeling badly about their own bodies. Um, she's also often blonde and the first Barbie was white. It wasn't until um, the 1960s that there was an African-American Barbie doll. So she doesn't necessarily represent all people in that way. Um, there's also been some criticism that the initial African-American Barbie was still the same um, body and face mold as Barbie, just a different color. Um, and so although Barbie strove to be more equal early on, it wasn't um, it wasn't with a different model that might um, more reflect what different folks look like. And the Barbie design has changed over the years as well, uh, while trying to remain somewhat recognizable to this original doll that we're talking about today. But one thing that Barbie has maintained over the years is her independence. And, and what are some of the other positives that are associated with Barbie? Sure. Well, Barbie, Barbie and Ken have never married. So Barbie has remained an independent woman um, since 1959 when she was introduced. Um, I think some other positives of Barbie are that imagination. Barbie has had so many different careers that different girls and children can envision themselves having. Um, she's also been an avenue for imagination and exploratory play. So really letting people open up their imaginations and think big about their future. Obviously, the Barbie movie by Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie has added to this conversation about this toy and what it represents. So for you personally, how do you see Barbie and how do you appreciate this artifact from the Wisconsin Historical Society? I had Barbies growing up, so I've always had a soft spot for Barbie. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting about the Barbie in our collection is the way it, it tells the story of childhood from 1961, and it connects so concretely with childhood today. Um, it shows how Beth Fox was playing with her doll. If you look at the Barbie, we have her hairs in a French braid. She's had her clothing changed. So you can see that this Barbie was used and played with. And it really shows how, how Beth interacted with her and how she enjoyed that doll. And I think when you look at Barbies today, you still see that, that kids are using them to play and tell stories with. Um, Kate McKinnon's character of Weird Barbie is a great example of that, where um, you know the, the Weird Barbie has been drawn on and clearly used and loved by a child. And you can see that in the Barbie that we have in our collection. And I love that. And the fact that museum collections often show things that have been used in real life. It's not like a collector's item, though those have their place, obviously, too. But the fact that this was actually used and taken care of is special. Absolutely. We always say we try to collect what we call game used. So we really want to see how people have used things and interacted with those things to, um, to improve their lives. Well, Abby, thanks so much for joining me to talk about Barbie today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Abby Norderhow is the Director of Acquisitions and State Archivist for the Wisconsin Historical Society. She spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski in September. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll hear from a same-sex couple about their journey to becoming parents. Plus, we'll learn about Milwaukee's long history of drag performance. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.